Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. So sometimes a food processor is just a food processor, but sometimes it becomes so much more than that. And man, oh man, are we ever finding that out? Yeah, my food processor has inspired so much frustration, so much advice, and so many calls for solutions to our disposable culture. Yeah, I'm Laura Lynch, and this is What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions, and we don't usually start the show with listener feedback, but this is an unusual situation. And Rachel Sanders, who you just heard, is here with me for more on the subject that struck a chord and also some, should I say, discord. Apologies with so many of you. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Laura. Yeah, so last week I brought in the bowl from my food processor. It has a cracked plastic piece on the handle so it doesn't attach properly to the base anymore. I've already replaced the bowl once, and replacing it again would cost $80. A brand new food processor wouldn't cost much more than that. But I don't want to send the motor, which still works, to the landfill. And I've been paralyzed over what to do about this for about five years. Five years is a long time, Rachel. (laughs) I know. But I do feel quite validated in this dilemma because listeners flooded our inbox in commiseration. They feel my pain on this. Okay. It turns out there are a lot of people out there who are frustrated about their broken food processors. And vacuum cleaners. And washing machines and dishwashers. And microwaves and coffee makers. Most of the people who wrote to us blame manufacturers for designing their products in a way that they break easily and are difficult or impossible to repair. And that is why we're talking about my food processor on our Climate (laughs) Solutions show. Because there are government around the world working on right-to-repair laws. Those could force manufacturers to make products easier to repair, and that could help reduce overconsumption. Yeah, we're going to get to that. But there were also a lot of people who wrote in with some do-it-yourself repair advice. There sure were. Yeah. So we're going to look into some of those policy solutions in the coming weeks. But first, I thought I'd try a few of the fix-it suggestions we got. And the simplest solution a few people mentioned was good old-fashioned Duct tape. Duct tape. So my husband and I pulled out our food processor to see what we could do. It's so busted. The handle is like <laughs> coming apart into like three pieces. There we go. Wrap it around. Where are there? Sure. Oh, that's a good sound. Oh, don't just a cracking plastic. <laughs> the thing. In the thing, but what well, would if it was? Ah! <laughs> it, it, it works. Wow, that's not gonna last long. Oh no, it's, it's seen better days. 
Nathan sounds actually pretty happy with himself there. He was pleased with himself, yeah. So we did manage to get those blades spinning again, but the bowl has to be wedged onto the base in just the right way. And underneath the duct tape, the plastic handle is now even more broken than it was before. So this is not a permanent fix. But in the process, we realized that the cracked outer piece of the handle looks like it should be replaceable. So that made me think of a suggestion that a couple of other listeners made. Gordon Payne wrote to us about his niece's stand mixer. It was making this awful grinding noise, and so when he opened it up, he saw a broken plastic piece. The company told him they don't sell that piece separately, so he'd have to buy the whole $160 motor assembly to get the tiny little piece he needed. He writes, I went on to Thingiverse.com. What? Thingiverse.com. Okay, I've never heard of that, right? What is it? An online storehouse of millions of 3D-designed printed parts and items. People design the replacement parts, and then they post them for others to use. A 30-second search landed me on the exact fan part. I downloaded it for free, and 30 minutes later, I had printed a fan part which fit my niece's mixer perfectly. Total cost? About five cents. Five cents. That is amazing. Like I said, I'd never heard of that before, but that sounds like it could have real potential. It does. So, Laura, I have a teenage son, and his friend Nelson has a 3D printer. So I dropped by his house to see if he could help me. You can hear his 3D printer working away, printing a little boat in the background. This is the bowl for my food processor. Yeah. See how the handle's cracked? Yeah. Because this is broken, the whole food processor doesn't work. So, that, yeah, that's kind of dumb. But. So, it's totally dumb. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, Laura, it turns out Nelson is quite familiar with the Thingiverse. You say I actually use this website all the time. This is definitely the best website for 3D printing things. I think these are just different parts, so none of them are the handle. None of them are the handle. No. Like, there's a ton of yeah. yeah. It's quite a repository of 3D models, and it's all free and stuff, but not the one you need today. Do you think there's a company that could, like, figure out the parts that are needed and print them out? I've never heard of that, but I don't think it would be that difficult for a a company that made the food processor to just publish their models on the internet so they could be repaired. Aha, that would be useful, (laughs) wouldn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. Hear that, companies? (laughs) That's interesting. It is, isn't it? Yeah. That would be a good idea. So that was not a success. They didn't have the part that I needed, but our listeners had other suggestions as well. So I am going to keep trying some of the stories people told us about the lengths they've gone to to keep their old broken appliances working were very inspiring. Uh, But people emailed to share their thoughts on the larger issue here as well. Bruna Nota said, I am totally convinced that we will start making a meaningful difference in our carbon footprint only when we learn to do without, to find simpler alternative ways to live, even if any of these new habits cause some discomfort. In the process, we may also find ways to live with more equity among ourselves and encourage politicians to legislate for thriftiness and equality rather than profit. That is a really legitimate point. And, and I've heard it before that, that maybe doing with less doesn't mean doing badly. It just means doing things differently. And I'm going to keep my own eye on this because I'm about to move and I'm going to be opening some things up that have been in storage for a few years. And I'm going to really weed through and see what I really need to keep going. Right. I mean, on my part, you know, with this broken food processor, I've gotten used to chopping my vegetables by hand. 
it would be nice to be able to make hummus again one of these days, but I really don't want to buy another brand new food processor that's destined to break within a few months. And I'm not the only one upset over the short lifespan of these modern appliances. Magnus McNabb wrote, this is an issue that has been bothering me deeply for many years. It's a practice that is entirely capitalist and sacrifices the health of the planet in the name of profit. I honestly cannot believe it's not a criminal offense. So Magnus said he's had a lot of appliances and devices fail over the years. And he said, right to repair is a great first step, but I honestly believe we need governments to legislate minimum standards for longevity and outlaw planned obsolescence. I, I wonder when I hear that, whether I know that there's such a thing as a Canadian Standards Council, which is supposed to set these kinds of standards for different kinds of things, um, perhaps not related to this, but if it's something that government could be looking into, if it's something that you even can legislate. That's a very good question. Uh, I'm going to dig into that. And it's not just appliances, right? It's, it's electronic devices as well. So here's another email we got on that score. Jane Wexel wrote to say, I think cell phone producers should be made to sell updates that would enable cell phone and tablet users to keep using the devices they own that are still in excellent shape rather than being forced to purchase new devices. The amount of energy, water and resources used to continuously produce new is harming the planet and wasting non-renewable resources. Two listeners got in touch to say that Quebec introduced a bill in June Bill 29, an act to protect consumers from planned obsolescence and to promote the durability, repairability and maintenance of goods. So there's a lot of policy to talk about on this subject, and we're going to keep digging into it over the next few weeks. And you're going to keep trying to fix the food process. I am. You can borrow mine in oh, the meantime. Thanks. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you, Rachel. And thank you to the dozens and dozens of listeners who wrote in about this. We are going to continue to follow the issue. And yes, the fate of Rachel's food processor If you'd like to get in touch with us about the right to repair regulations or anything else you hear on the program, you can always email us earth at cbc.ca. That uh, is an unusual sound, Leah. It's actually the sound of wind turbines. I'm wondering. I could have Leah... guessed that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so when you hear something like that, what what comes to mind for you? Mm, sounds like a ceiling fan, but on steroids, <laughs> whooshing for sure. And also, of course, clean energy comes to mind. I would say. Yeah, and is that something that gets you excited? <laughs> I'd say it's what gets me up in the morning most days. <laughs> I've actually been inside one of those wind turbines, so I know what they look like, how they sound, and how they feel when they're in them. And you obviously feel, you know, excited about wind energy projects, but you've recently discovered something. It's that some people of a certain demographic and a certain income bracket and in certain parts of Canada and the U.S. are actually more likely to feel a different way about having wind energy Uh projects in their communities. So uh, can we talk about this new study of yours? So, yeah, I looked at all the wind projects in North America between 2000 and 2016. And so I looked at Canadian wind projects and American wind projects. And I tried to understand which ones were supported by the community or, you know, went forward without a lot of drama and which ones were opposed. Okay. Before we get into it any further, I think maybe I could better get you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Oh, valid. So I'm Leah Stokes, and I'm an associate professor at uh, the University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, where I work on climate and clean energy policy. But I'm originally from Ontario, Canada. 
Okay, I think that qualifies you in all sorts of ways. Leah, welcome to What on Earth. (laughs) Thanks for having me on. So you and your colleagues combed through 36,000 newspaper articles from 2000 to 2016 that talked about wind projects. Tell me exactly what you were looking for. You know, we wanted to understand if we looked at all the wind projects, not just the ones that make the news or that we know people don't like, but all of them, how common is it? that a wind project faces opposition. And the only way we could figure out how to understand that question, how to answer it, was to look at newspaper articles over a long period of time. So we put in keywords like wind and opposition and energy and anti and things like that. And it it pulled an enormous amount of newspaper articles. And then we dug into, okay, what project is being opposed here? Where is it located? How are people opposing it? You know, to try to understand just how common opposition is. Okay. And so over this period of time, then what did you find out? Well, we found out that opposition is growing over time. So at the beginning of our data set around 2000, in Canada, it's more like one in 10 wind projects that was facing opposition. But by the end of our data set in 2016, it's more like one in four. So we are starting to see more and more anti-wind activity. Right. Uh, Tell me, why did you want to figure this out? Why did you want to figure out who was more likely to oppose wind energy projects and and where it's happening? Well, uh, when I went to the University of Toronto in the early 2000s, there was a new uh, policy that was passed. Essentially, it paid people to build wind and solar projects. And we actually built one of those at the University of Toronto using this um, policy. And so Afterwards, when I went to do my PhD at MIT in the States, I wanted to study this Ontario policy. And what I quickly found out was that it had become quite controversial, that there was an enormous amount of anti-wind activity in Ontario. So I wrote a bunch of papers about that. And then I started to ask myself, well, is Ontario an outlier or is anti-wind activity this common all across North America? Residents of the nation municipality fanned the flames of the debate over wind turbines. By protesting against them, Julie LaRue was part of the protest. People are so stressed out and so upset about these projects. Two years ago, council welcomed applications... Katie Erickson only has to drive a few minutes from home before she's surrounded by wind turbines. We just want to do everything in our power to put a stop to this. Eight new wind turbines are going up near Erickson's house. Like a growing number. Okay, so then we will focus on Canada. Opposition to wind energy projects during this time period was primarily in wealthier communities in Ontario where people had higher median incomes. And those communities were also 97% white. Mm -hmm. What was your reaction to that finding? Well, um, you know, I went into this study not necessarily knowing what I would find, how common is anti-wind activity, what predicts it. But what I ended up finding out was that wealth is a really big predictor. So if you were to build or propose a wind project in rural Ontario and you were to propose it in a lower income, relatively lower income community or a wealthier community, what you would find is that you're more likely to have opposition in that wealthier community and that opposition would be more intense, meaning people would use more tactics to try to oppose the wind project, right? They wouldn't just, I don't know, organize a protest. They would also have a lawsuit. They would also go to local 
permitting processes and try to stop it that way. And so what we're seeing is that wealthier communities are mobilizing more intensely to try to stop clean energy. And it just so happened that those wealthier communities were were predominantly white. Um, so in the Canadian data set, we don't see a lot of variation in the racial makeup of places where wind energy is proposed. It just so happens that a lot of rural Canada is quite white. And so the places where the wind projects are proposed are, are very white, whether they are opposed or supported. It's, it's fairly consistent. It's like 97, 98 percent white where, where wind turbines are built in Canada. Okay, you talked a little bit about how they, the, the, the communities that oppose them, how they went about it. How big were some of these efforts? Well, that was one of the interesting findings of our, our project. You know, in Canada during this time period, you know, the median number of participants in a protest against a wind project was just 34 people. So, you know, that's not five people, but it's also not a hundred people or a thousand people. It's really a small number of intensely organized opponents who are trying to block the clean energy transition. And that's a fairly consistent finding across a number of my research papers. You know, if you run a public opinion poll and you say, what do you think about wind energy? The fact is that it's very well supported in a place like Ontario or really across Canada. You know, we see pretty high support upwards of 75%. But then when you go to a specific community and try to build the project, that's not what you find on the ground. And that's because the small number of opponents are working together to try to block these projects. And, you know, it's important to contextualize that 34 numbers of people, right? Compare that to just a week or two ago in New York City, when there was a big climate march, 75,000 people showed up, right? So, you know, the people who are out there wanting us to move faster on climate action are far larger. It's a far bigger group of people than the folks who are trying to slow down the clean energy transition. Well, then with that small number of people, were any any of them actually successful in blocking projects? Well, the interesting thing is that the Ontario law was designed when Premier McGuinty was in power so that local groups had a very hard time actually stopping projects. It basically gave authority to the province rather than to a local jurisdiction to decide if that project was going to move forward or not. So yes, some projects were stalled, but in general, it was quite hard to do it. So instead, what happened is that people got angry at the Liberal Party and they ended up voting against the government, but they weren't very able to stop projects from moving forward. That's interesting. And I know this wasn't the focus of of your particular study, but do you have a sense of why people in Ontario didn't want the wind projects near where they lived? Yeah, lots of other researchers have looked at that question across the world, really. And, you know, people are concerned about the noise, about how it looks. They don't want to look at these things or they're concerned about home prices or sometimes they'll bring up bird or bat uh, impacts. And the fact is that, yes, it's legitimate if somebody doesn't want a wind project in their backyard. But compare that to sticking a coal plant in a lower in a lower income community or 
more in a community of color. Compare that to the effects of smog on a city like Toronto throughout the 1990s when we had those coal plants operating. You know, the effects of pollution from fossil fuel power plants are so much more negative. You know, they're very well documented in lots of research, and they're often imposed on lower income communities and communities of color. So that's where we kind of conclude our study with this idea of energy privilege. Yes, you know, people can say we don't want this wind energy in our backyards, but what they're doing when they when they say that is that they're actually keeping open polluting infrastructure in other people's backyards that has very clear health implications for those communities. Now, uh, your study looked at data from 2000 to 2016, but I'm curious, do you know if public attitudes towards wind energy projects have shifted since then in, in Ontario or elsewhere in Canada? Well, I think what's been happening in the post-2016 period, especially in the United States, is that some of these anti-wind groups are being funded by the fossil fuel industry. They are starting to have ties with really well-resourced opponents to the clean energy transition. So, for example, there's recent reporting around offshore wind in the United States, trying to basically spread misinformation that offshore wind is bad for whales. And that's been linked to fossil fuel industry. Interests. So in that period from Trump's election onwards, we're starting to see fossil fuel companies get involved with these local activists who are anti-wind. And, you know, I haven't looked at that yet in, Ontar- in Ontario or in Canada more broadly, but I wouldn't be surprised if we started to see some of those links to the fossil fuel industry. Right. And that suggests there is something of a more sophisticated campaign that is, is growing out of all of this. When I was looking into this, I would see that in some communities where there were people who were opposing wind farms, they were using pictures of turbines that had fallen down somewhere else and then suggesting that it had happened in their own backyard as a way to sort of tell people that this is not something that they wanted, which, as we know, is disinformation and misinformation. Yeah, you know... When I was first studying this around 2010, you know, and going to rural parts of Ontario and looking at all the websites that these groups made online, it was, uh, you know, not a very sophisticated operation. You know, with not a lot of resources, they were having a significant impact. Um, But I think that that has started to change where there's actual money going into these efforts to try to slow down the clean energy transition. And that's because it's not in the fossil fuel industry's interest for us to transition to clean energy. Right. And you anticipated my next question, which which is the IEA said a few days ago, there has been a record growth of key clean energy technologies since 2021. So if you can talk to this a bit more, what are the wider implications for the transition away from fossil fuels when local communities reject these clean energy projects? Yeah, I mean, climate change is happening now. Air pollution from burning fossil fuels has very long lasting effects on people. When we stay with the fossil fuel based energy system that we have today, it imposes significant costs, particularly on low income communities and communities of color, not just in Canada, but really around the world. So when people slow down the clean energy transition, they are choosing a world that is dirtier, that has more pollution, and that leads to more unequal impacts. Just just one more thing. You found that in the U.S., opposition to wind projects was less likely if the projects were community-owned. So what might that say about how to get more Canadians on board with wind projects and the clean energy transition? 
Yeah, you know, this was a big idea in Ontario in the early 2000s. People from Toronto or who have visited there may notice there is a wind turbine on the lakeshore, right? On Lake Ontario. And that project was actually a community uh, developed project. It was uh, built by a cooperative to try to share in clean energy. And that model had a really big idea because in countries like Denmark, a lot of early wind projects were built with that community model, meaning that, yes, we built this project, but the profits are shared. Unfortunately, a lot of those projects tend to be smaller. So just like that one turbine on Lake Ontario, you know, they tend to be just a couple uh, wind energy turbines. So if we really want to have community owned wind projects where everybody in that community gets to benefit from the money that's flowing in, you know, we probably need those to be larger scale projects. So not just a couple wind energy turbines, but maybe a hundred, you know, that's this kind of scale that we would want to see for community ownership. And I do feel that that would increase acceptance because part of the reason why people don't want these projects is that they see that their neighbor is getting a lease payment. They're getting money every year because they have that wind turbine on their land. But the neighbor right across that property line has to look at the thing, maybe not like the sound of it, and they're not getting any of those same resources. So if we could share the money more effectively, that would probably lead to greater acceptance. So instead of NIMBY, it's FOMO. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe that's right. Exactly. They're missing out on that sweet cash. Exactly. Leah Stokes, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. And we've got time now for a few more climate stories in the news this week. There's more news on emissions. The Canadian Climate Institute says the country's overall emissions increased by 2.1% in 2022 over the previous year. That increase is smaller than in recent years. But the Institute says emissions from the oil and gas industry, along with buildings, are holding back progress on overall cuts to greenhouse gases. The Institute says it underscores the need for Ottawa to move forward with its plan to cap emissions, mainly from the oil sands, along with methane regulations and other policies. Six young people from Portugal were in court against 32 European governments this week. They claim their human rights have been violated by those nations' failure to act on climate change. The half-dozen, between the ages of 11 and 24, live in parts of Portugal ravaged by wildfires and drought. The European Court of Human Rights is expected to issue a ruling in the first half of 2024. One of the countries targeted in the case is the United Kingdom. And just days ago, its oil and gas regulator approved the development of Britain's biggest untapped oil field off the Shetland Islands. UK Green Party MP Caroline Lucas called the decision, quote, the greatest act of environmental vandalism in my lifetime, unquote. The British Chancellor says the country will still need oil and gas for decades to come. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? 
I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. So when I think of buildings, I think of comfy homes, bustling businesses, and historic institutions. Others look at buildings and think about fish. (laughs) We'll find out why coming up. But first. This is a difficult day. I have been an emergency physician in Yellow Knives Dunning Territory for over a decade. At this exact moment, the 100-bed hospital, Stanton Territorial Hospital, that serves an area that includes the subarctic and the arctic that serves 30 majority indigenous communities in an area the size of France and Spain combined is being emergently evacuated. My best friends are in charge of this evacuation. They haven't slept in I don't even know how long. They never thought they would need to do this. Courtney Howard says it wasn't easy to focus that day just a few weeks ago when she was speaking at a health conference in Ottawa far from her home which was being threatened by wildfire. The doctor was set to return to Yellowknife with her husband and family after a year of study at Oxford University in Cambridge. But suddenly, they couldn't go back, at least not yet. She joins me now to talk about how Yellowknife is recovering and how she's more ready than ever to fight for well-being in a warming world. Hello. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. Courtney, tell me, why couldn't you go home? Wow, well, that sure brought back some emotions listening to that clip from the Canadian Medical Association General Counsel. We had landed from Oxford in Ottawa. I had been booked to give a keynote on the health impacts of climate change and wildfires and decarbonizing healthcare and adapting it to climate impact. And that was the day that Yellowknife declared a state of emergency. So we spent the first two days when I was there talking to my sister who was house sitting for us in Yellowknife, trying to figure out if my mom's wedding dress could fit into our firebox, where our great Nana's uh, wedding ring was, how she should evacuate, whether she could bring her dog and how everybody could get out safely. And then there I was on stage and I was standing there thinking, this is really, really affecting my community, my hospital. And this is why we've been doing this work for so long. So how many days was it before you actually were able to go home? It was over three weeks. So it's a humbling thing to be relying on your community for care. It's not a situation I've been in before and certainly not for three weeks. And it's even in the midst of the privilege I know I have as a physician who's married to another physician who has a big network of friends and family in southern Canada, it was still difficult because of the uncertainty. We didn't know if our house was going to be okay. We didn't know if our hospital was going to be okay. And so just recognizing that even a privileged person like me, the climate-related impacts really affected the last part of our summer. Yellowknife is still extremely smoky. And knowing that people with less financial resources, maybe in the South, really had a much more difficult time. Now, yeah, I wanted to ask you, what did you see, smell, and hear when you finally did arrive? Many of us on the plane were surprised at the amount of smoke that there still was as we were coming in to land. 
I guess in our heads, a lot of it was over, but of course it wasn't. And so we were walking across the tarmac and it was smoky. It was a bit of a heavy hearted feeling. And then we walked into the airport and there were just all of these bright eyed volunteers and high visibility vests rushing around asking us how many people were in our party and did we need a, a ride and where was our luggage and just really shepherding us off. We had ended up in a big sort of tourist van with all my kids and all the kids from down the block were also on our flight. And I, I as an adult, was grudgingly admitted to the back seat. And <laughs> this lovely, lovely volunteer drove us home and had a little tour through the neighborhood. And he said, you know, we just really wanted to make sure that people felt welcomed when they came home because we knew that the evacuation was difficult for everybody. And we knew how important that sense of community and welcome was. So that's why there were so many people after such a difficult summer where many of them had stayed around to help make the fire breaks and help take care of the firefighters. They were giving again of their time in order to make sure that their community felt welcomed on the way home. And I have to say, I got tears in my eyes. And that is 100% why people live in the North. It's that sense of community care, that sense of collective responsibility. Um, it was really something that came to the fore during COVID. And it's something that, again, uh, really warmed our hearts as we came home after the wildfire evacuation. So tell me about the air quality now. The air quality is improving. It's patchy now. For the first week and a bit that we were home, it was just like toxic pea soup every single day. The two Dyson air filtration devices we had in our house weren't keeping up. Uh, the PM 2.5 in the house uh, was up to 90 uh, what does that mean? Particulate for, matter in the air? Yeah. So when we did studies into the health impacts of the last summer of smoke in 2014, uh, it turns out that the particulate matter that's less than 2.5 microns per cubic meter is the most real sensitive indicator of, of health impact. And so that's what we tracked in our study. So six is our normal annual average in Yellowknife. Uh, about 30 is around where the uh, WHO says health impacts are really unacceptable. And inside my house, it was 90. Outside, it was almost 600. So it was really, really off the charts bad air quality. Wow. That must be worrying for you with the kids. Oh, it's terrible. We're sending them to school with N95 masks on, trying to get them not to play outside. And of course, because everyone from Yellowknife has come back from different parts of Canada, COVID is now raging through the community. So trying to get our kids not to play with the neighbors down the block that they haven't seen in a year. And it was it, it was pretty difficult. But, but that okay, so that leads me to wonder how your colleagues and the hospital are doing now. There are many layers to the challenges we face now. So viral season is starting. The smoke is continuing. I got an email from another doctor who wants to do a study into the mental health impact of this on uh, youth. And so we're starting to think about, okay, well, how do we evaluate what just happened and what's still happening? We've got providers themselves who are displaced and are coming back home and trying to unpack and get everything ready while they get their kids back to school, while they are showing up for shifts and trying to have their, their own personal cup full enough that they can help to buffer the emotion of the community members who are coming in, all of whom are also facing their own challenges. And so it's really one of those moments where getting a really good sleep, 
minimizing caffeine and really leaning into the community building is really important. Can you uh, tell us what the impact is of smoke on people over time, including those who are the most vulnerable? We know that acute smoke increases asthma exacerbations, increases acute heart problems, increases chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And we're starting to see in the literature other mental health-related studies that say, yeah, people tend to be irritable, they have trouble sleeping, they have trouble concentrating, but we still really don't know what the long-term impacts are. There was one study that came out a couple of years ago that showed a slight increase in a couple of types of tumors in one community as compared to a group of uh, communities that had not been exposed to wildfire smoke, but we need a lot more follow-up research. If we take a look at the broader air pollution research, fossil fuel related air pollution primarily, we see that it really increases uh, problems with all of the chronic diseases that already kill Canadians. So stroke, cancer, heart disease, diabetes are all worsened by regular air pollution. So we don't know what the long-term impacts of wildfire-related air pollution are, but we have no reason to believe they're going to be good. You you did first start to study the effects of wildfire smoke in 2014, as you've mentioned. What's changed since then when it comes to how the medical system deals with the health impacts of climate change? We have an entire curriculum to overhaul and an entire cohort of practicing healthcare providers to get up to speed and brief on not only what health impacts and health system impacts climate change is causing now, but the fact that we're going to continue to warm until at least mid-century under all plausible emission scenarios. And so we need to be preparing every hospital, every emergency system for a changing and worsening temperature and precipitation pattern, as well as decarbonizing all of our systems. So we're not contributing to the harm. We're in a bit of a sprint to get everybody up to speed so that we can do as best as we can uh, to make sure that every other community who may need to evacuate due to wildfires has practitioners in it who know what the evacuation plan is, who know how to counsel their patients around air pollution, and who are ready for the, the mental and physical impacts of what's coming. Yellowknife has been through so much. I'm wondering what you hope to contribute as you return to your ER shifts. I think sometimes when you've been away, you can come back and see something with new eyes. And so what I learned when I was in the UK is that a richness we really, really have here in Canada that I was aware of, but I didn't realize until about halfway through the year in the UK that I was waiting for these voices and every interaction was Indigenous points of view, Indigenous ways of knowing. The Indigenous ways of knowing that are always ecocentric that our are talking about the land about our love for the land and one another about the four-leggeds the the winged beings that is the frame we need to adopt in society as a whole and what i learn when i go to the emergency department is really how much wisdom there is in my community in that respect sometimes i'll have conversations with elders when i'm stitching up their head after they've fallen or what have you. And so really reconnecting with that wisdom that we have here in Canada, um, Indigenous communities who have stewarded the land for generations with this really community-based, ecocentric framework. 
And then I'm looking for ways to really help amplify those voices and make sure that uh, that wisdom is brought to policy tables locally and in Canada and internationally so that we can take the best of Western thought and take the best of Indigenous thought and use all of that to help us plot and work together towards a healthy path forward. Dr. Courtney Howard, welcome home and thank you very much. Oh, thanks so much, Laura. That's lovely. (laughs) Sending thanks to everybody who helped the Northerner this summer. It really, really made a difference. Can you guess what that sound is? (laughs) You'll get your answer if you drive about an hour east of Toronto. You'll find the Haute Goat Farm, as in Haute Couture, just outside of Port Hope. There's the occasional music festival there. Locally sourced food, but mostly people come for the animals. Lately, though, there's been something else that's also drawing visitors. Somebody said, what do you think about an EV charge? And I said, what a great idea. That's owner Debbie Nightingale. She says she had the EV charger installed this year because she wanted to make the farm even more eco-friendly. More and more people are, you know, driving electric vehicles. And it gives people another spot to stop. And there you go. Debbie says it's been an added bonus. It's drawing in the tourists. It's not like there's lineups for it, but it certainly is well used, I would say. And it's not a big moneymaker for us. In fact, it's just not a moneymaker for us. But again, we didn't do it for the moneymaking. We did it because I think it's important to do our part. And it just seemed to fit with the philosophy of the farm. To cover some of the costs, Debbie says she applied for funding from the government. But learning about the types of chargers and finding someone to install it, that was a bit of a challenge. It was sort of a foreign concept to me in terms of how it all worked and what has to be done and all of that. So in the end, it cost us close to 20000 bucks. But again, because the government paid for half of it, that certainly softened the blow. And I know that over time, but it's going to be a long time, it will pay for itself. Well, Debbie's not alone in that initial struggle. According to Danielle Breton with the nonprofit Electric Mobility Canada, more and more businesses are adding EV chargers these days. It will attract business to your particular area. If we go back 20 years ago, back in the day, some hotels or restaurants would say free Wi-Fi. You know, you wanted to attract customers. Uh, the challenges, I would say, has to do more with not knowing exactly how to proceed. Sometimes government programs uh, will help you install those chargers uh, with, uh, with funding and with expertise. But some of the times you can sign an agreement with a network operator who will say what we need is a space for us to be able to install the charger so you don't have to pay anything, but we'll handle it. Kendra Imrie and her husband own Falcon Beach Ranch in southeastern Manitoba. They're right along the Trans-Canada Highway close to the Ontario border. Most visitors stop by to ride horses or spend a night or two at the cabins. But one day, a couple of years ago, a different kind of visitor stopped by. Out of the blue, a white truck pulled into the cabin guest parking area. We thought, oh, just another drop-in, right? And uh, the guy introduced himself and he was a representative from Tesla. Now Tesla partners with hotels, restaurants, and other public places to put in charging stations that can be used by Tesla EV owners. Now that exclusive Tesla usage is a bit of an issue in itself, but Kendra says the company offered to provide all the equipment. Apparently all she had to do was find a contractor to install it. So she said yes. 
we try to reduce our impact on the environment as much as possible. And having a place for people to be able to charge their vehicles is important to us. And there's really no other infrastructure for electric vehicles in our community. So it was kind of a no-brainer for us. Like Debbie at Oat Goat Farm, Kendra says it took a while for people to notice the EV charging station at Falcon Beach Ranch. For the first maybe six months, we had maybe one or two folks stop by and uh, charge. But in the past six months, it's just the uptick was big, like much bigger than we had expected. We have had a few customers that were coming horseback riding anyway, and uh, so came and charged while they were horseback riding. But the vast majority are folks that are just traveling across country and, uh, you know, traveling the Trans-Canada Highway. So folks are just traveling across and they need a charge, so they ask if they can stop in and charge for a couple hours. And uh, in the meantime, they might uh, walk around, visit the animals, even uh, walk into town, visit the businesses there. Now that more people are charging their EVs at a ranch, Kendra says the next step is to figure out well, what to charge them. So I'm about to talk about buildings with somebody who knows a fair bit about them. And because we're going to be talking about buildings, Raphael, I want you to give me your elevator pitch about what we're talking about here. Go. Sure, yeah. So so the problem we spend most of our time thinking about is how to keep humans comfortable indoors. And uh, right now, the way we do it is with air conditioners and furnaces and electric lights, which use something like one quarter of all the energy we consume globally. And the hypothesis with our research is that buildings are not actually that different from biological organisms. And biological organisms control their climate mostly at their skin. And so the, the research output in our case is actually buildings with veins. All right. Not bad, Raphael. No, not bad. But I think, <laughs> I think we better let listeners know who you are since you're talking about buildings with veins. Can you introduce yourself? Yes, absolutely. So uh, my name is Raphael Kay. I am a uh, graduate student uh, in the, the PhD program in material science and mechanical engineering at Harvard University. Uh, the, much of the work we'll be talking about, though, I did in my master's degree at the University of Toronto. We are, we're talking about buildings, but there was one word you didn't use in that pitch, and that is fish, seafood. What does one have to do with the other? Fundamentally, in a building, we're, we're trying to uh, minimize the amount of energy we're using. And so we're trying to control how much heat comes in and out, how much sunlight comes in and out. And it, it turns out that a lot of fish and a lot of marine organisms, like a squid, like a krill or a, or a crab, uh, they have all these interesting ways of, of controlling their uh, climate using fluids and pigments and moving these colorful pigments from different places within their skin at uh, different times. And so it's, it's how do they shade? How do they heat themselves? How do they cool themselves? And, and how do they do this in as smart and as an efficient way as possible? And what can we learn? Okay, so tell me what you did learn and what, what you say these kinds of building, I guess, skins w- would would look like. How would they regulate temperature? The The, the most exciting thing that we learned is this idea of, of moving uh, moving pigments from one place to another. And, I, you know, if, if you 
if you sort of back up and, and you ask how do regular buildings try to deal with the smart control of, of heat and, and light, it's often with mechanical approaches. We have a, you know, a lot of exterior or interior shades. We close the blinds. We have some smarter systems that do this automatically. But you know, for the most part, we're, we're moving bulky solid objects. And in, in these biological organisms, that's not the case at all. We have, you know, we have soft uh, materials and inside those are pigments. If you can kind of think of like what a food dye or a food coloring would be, uh, imagine those and imagine a bunch of tiny particles of those. Uh, and, and basically they move the position of those from one place to another. And, and this is sort of analogous to, you know, you think about just moving a bunch of liquids and from different containers at different times. And, and those liquids or those soft materials uh, each have an interesting function. They can, you know, control how much light comes in. They can control how much light gets redirected in a certain way. And, and so they really open up a, a totally new way of thinking about uh, using the skin as a climate interface with these kind of soft, fluid-like mechanisms. Okay, but but put it on the building for me because you're not actually using these kinds of, of fish skins, right? H how do you make it work on a building? Yeah, so, so if, if you think about uh, a window and you can imagine in those windows you have a bunch of tiny voids, so they might be as thick as your uh, index finger, let's say. You could call that a channel. And so you can imagine a bunch of channels that are, that are hollow within a window. And we can move different liquids or gases within those channels at different times. And so some of these channels overlap. And depending on what the liquid is that's in this channel or what the gas is in this channel, we'll do something totally different to sunlight. So at 4 p.m., if we want to take sunlight, we want to dim it by 50%. We want to redirect it to a certain corner of the room and we want to filter out the invisible heat portions but keep the daylight portions, we can actually pull a fluid from one area to another, take it out of its container, and spread it around and along the skin to do these very specific functions that actually save a ton of energy. Now you mentioned heat and, and on our show we've covered just how deadly heat inside buildings can be for people, but I just want to talk about emissions for a second. Why is it so important in terms of emissions to find better ways to heat and cool buildings? Broadly speaking, we spend about one quarter of all the energy we consume on Earth heating and cooling and lighting indoor spaces. And so this is one quarter of our energy consumption. And it's something similar. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, 15 to 20 percent of all greenhouse gas emissions can be, you know, prescribed to the activity of indoor climate control. And so, you know, we're talking about one fifth of all the carbon emissions uh, basically come from this activity. And so if, if we can find ways to, you know, have this or, you know, massively reduce this load, which, you know, our, our models are telling us our systems have the possibility to do, we can actually really make a dent in the kind of climate control problem uh, and the sort of global warming problem uh, in terms of carbon emissions. Now, as really fascinating as this is, it's still theory, right? When, when is it going to become reality? Hopefully in the next you know, year or two, actually putting some of these in you know, university buildings and getting some real test data and you know, eventually, hopefully, you know, scaling this um, 
you know, to, to kind of, you know, beyond the laboratory and actually uh, into the market. There's a lot of ways that this can be applied. You know, we can make brand new windows with the system. Uh, this could be sort of a, a retrofit, a layer that you add to your window. Um, you know, this could go in walls. This could go on roofs. So it's, you know, where where is the kind of easiest place to start and start kind of turning heads about this kind of, you know, totally new way of thinking about how to, you know, kind of climate control a building. And so that, I think, is a, a little bit of a challenge for us. But I think we're all relatively optimistic. And did you see that this future city where buildings with these fish-inspired skins are, are actually everywhere? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, like, if, if you look at, you know, the, the biological kind of world and, and you think, you know, about how many you know, evolutionary cycles that, you know, these systems have had to go through to, to make it as, as the kind of, you know, successful way of controlling climate that they are today, right? Like, it's not easy to have something appear in an organism. It has to go through, you know, effectively, you know, millions and millions of evolutionary cycles for it to be considered good enough to stand the test of time in an organism. And so if all these organisms are using this approach, I have yet to come up with a reason why our comparatively more simple systems, uh, you know, can't find a way to, you know, do this in an economical way. I mean, fundamentally, we're using mostly water. Um, you know, we're not using toxic materials. We're not, you know, using rare earth metals. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's inexpensive. It's sustainable. It's scalable. So I, I, I do see a future where we kind of have, uh, you know, buildings with veins. So fascinating. Raphael Kay, thank you so much for talking to me about it. Yeah, thank you. I've enjoyed it, Laura. Isn't that a lovely sound? How often do you get out in nature? What sounds are you hearing around you? How do they make you feel? Scientists tell us that the sounds of nature can be great for your mental health. I certainly think that's true for all the times that I get out in the forest and on the mountains. But Ceylon Stills thinks there are even more benefits. I feel that when people love and appreciate something, they're more prone to protect it and take care of it. Ceylon is a sound artist originally from Sri Lanka, and we're listening to her music right now. She captures field recordings from the natural world around us, bugs, bees, trees, and combines them with instruments and voice to create these wonderful soundscapes. But at an event this year at Toronto's York University, she pushed the boundaries of the medium. I've been creating these pieces where people's cell phones come together to create this sort of three-dimensional sonic texture in the room. So get this, the audience gathers, they all pull out their phones, and everyone hits play at different times. You'll hear your melody on your phone, but then you'll also hear the sounds of everyone else's phones harmonizing with your phone to create a different, a different sound than what you would hear if you heard it on your own. I guess it's a little like that, that sort of cacophony of birdsong, and Salen says holding a cell phone surrounded by people in the middle of a city can actually help people deepen their relationship with nature. A big way that I, that I feel that I contribute and want my art to contribute to conservation is just by fostering a sense of awe and wonder for nature and for people, people who've never heard a wood thrush 
to all of a sudden hear it coming to life all around them in this room where all of a sudden this bird that they maybe if you're living in a city you might not have access to those sort of sounds you may not know how incredible a forest is and you're not as likely to want to protect something that you haven't had an intimate experience with and an understanding how beautiful it is so i think by bringing the sounds of the forest into cities and into these sort of spaces where people who haven't experienced it before can all of a sudden have this sort of very intimate and very interactive experience with it that maybe it will foster a little bit of love and appreciation for the earth. (laughs) (sighs) We'll let these meditative sounds take us out this week. But before I go, I want to let you know what on earth was put together by Danielle Piper, Vivian Luck, Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, Matthias Wolfson, and Catherine Rolfson. Special thanks this week to Emily Chung. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.